Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI Institute, where we have real conversations about real safety issues in healthcare. I'm your host, Paul Anderson. More than 5,000 members across all care settings rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of patient care. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. Today, we're talking about COVID-19, the disease caused by the novel coronavirus that originated in the Chinese city, Wuhan. Now designated a public health emergency by the World Health Organization and the U.S. Department for Health and Human Services, as of the time of this recording, the virus has been associated with tens of thousands of cases and nearly 2,000 deaths. We'll discuss the virus in the context of outbreak preparedness more broadly and what healthcare providers can do next. To get us started, I'll ask our guest to introduce himself. Hi, my name is James Davis. I'm a senior infection prevention analyst and patient safety consultant here at Ecri Institute. So, Jim, obviously we refer to this virus as a novel coronavirus, and you know I'm not an infection preventionist by any means, but I understand the word novel to mean that this is a newly emerged threat. So, can you walk us through a little bit of of you know what is a coronavirus as a, distinct from some other kind of virus, right. and what makes this one novel from other ones we've we've seen? So that's a really good question. Um, a coronavirus can is a is a family of viruses actually, and um, they can cause uh, like a common cold, or they can be something uh, more serious like what we saw with uh, MERS, CoV, and SARS. Uh, what and they were we we didn't see those before either. But this this virus that you know it's 2019 N the N for novel, okay. meaning that we've we've not seen this virus in its in this state before. Meaning it's a coronavirus, but we've never encountered it. An interesting point is it's zoonotic, meaning that it uh, can actually it it can jump from an animal. To human, much like the the theory about it uh, in the in the meat markets in in Wuhan, so that's um, where we think this made its first entrance into humans, right? That's basically what you know what we believe at this point. Gotcha. There's no other evidence to suggest otherwise that we're aware of. So, Jim, so so then, what's a kind of virus that's not a coronavirus? Just to draw the distinction. Well, I mean, the most the, the easiest one to talk about the, that a lot of folks would know of is influenza. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. All so, too familiar with that one. Or uh, norovirus. Okay. You know, so. So I've heard this outbreak alternatively pre- referred to as a pandemic, an epidemic, an outbreak. Are, are those terms synonymous or do they have sort of distinct meanings? Yeah, I mean, an outbreak and an epidemic essentially share the same definition for the most part, meaning that it's you're seeing an increase in cases that you wouldn't usually expect, but it's kind of geographically limited. Now, I know we've had cases essentially transported into other countries, but it didn't, like, there's no, like, center of disease in those countries. We know that the majority of the cases happened in China and are concentrated there, and you know, modern technology, basically air, air travel and all that kind of stuff has spread it okay. from there. Now, to give you what a pandemic is, think 1918 influenza or, you know, probably not politically correct these days, but the Spanish flu. Right. Um, that killed 50 million, I think, off the top of my head, worldwide. Okay. Um, you know, or, you know, lots and lots of death and many places where uh, – Lots and lots of people were infected 
So there's multiple, multiple hotspots. So, you know, pandemic, pan, widespread, widespread. epidemic, okay. kind of, and outbreak are kind of, for the most part, localized. Right. Now, could, you know, this turn into a pandemic? The possibility probably exists, but at this point, not really. And the, and as long as we're doing good containment, the, the likelihood there probably, you know, is is limited. So, and that's actually what, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about next. So it seems like t- to a layperson, again, a lot of the control measures that we're implementing sort of at the national and international level is around quarantine. So right. it's, you know, there's obviously we hear on the news a lot of travel restrictions within China, certainly a lot of travel restrictions, people coming and going. You hear about, you know, people being quarantined on cruise boats or being uh, we think the incubation period is about two weeks, so you're two weeks at a, 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 a military facility if you come back into the country, those kind of things. Is that sort of your first line to try to contain it, to keep it from becoming a true pandemic? Well, yeah. I mean, in any, in any uh, situation like this where we know where the source is, the first rule is containment. Okay. Containment limits spread. I mean, it's actually kind of that simple. Um, what's not simple is doing it on a broad scale closing roads, keeping tight control, and, you know, in certain political and geographic climates, it's either easier or harder to do um, when it comes to personal freedoms and things like that. But right now, it's it's basically all about containment and identifying persons of interest who may have been exposed or are at least coming from an area that we know that there's uh, infection and spread. Let me take it a little bit from this specific you know, virus and, and think a little bit more broadly about outbreak preparedness. So if I'm running any kind of healthcare facility, especially if I'm in one of the cities where we know travelers are being rooted to, you know, when they're coming back from Asia, um, you know, so we know that we're, we're sending folks to specific airports where they can be screened if they're coming back from China, particularly. Um, if I'm not involved in the screening directly, but say I run, you know, I have an urgent care center or I have a hospital with an emergency department or whatever I've got, is there something different I should be doing with regard to this outbreak compared to some other kind of outbreak? So um, you mentioned the flu or norovirus or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, I, so your your emergency preparedness plans, if they're well done, and that's the key, should be addressing all hazards. So whether it be biologic, chemical, um, natural disasters, things like that. Um, they should be pretty comprehensive, and you should be designing things that can be changed on the fly. So, you know, our public health partners, the CDC, the local health departments, the state health departments, they're, you know, identifying these persons of interest through their networks, through being communicated to with, you know, hospitals and intake and that kind of thing. As a hospital person responsible for this, what I also want to do is kind of contain, right? So if I have these folks coming into either urgent care, my physician offices, my ER, you know, I want to be able to identify them at the door, mm-hmm. not put them in the system and start spreading it around my facility. One of the easiest ways to do that is to keep current on what your, um, what your triage questions are. So for instance, if I show up in an ER, I should have a, a some sort of guidance that uses the case definition, the current vetted case definition usually put out by the CDC in this instance, where I'm going to ask specific questions. You, did you travel to here? Were you there at this point in time? Do you have any of these symptoms? Do any of your contacts have any of these symptoms? That type of thing. Mm-hmm. So we can flag you as at least a person of interest if you're 
actively exhibiting signs, then I'm going to isolate you right away. And even if you're a person of interest, I might just isolate you anyway until we figure out what is going on with that person. So again, it's it's containment, it's smart questioning. At a physician's office, you can do a lot of this stuff over the phone. Mm. So, you know, hi, your your appointment is here. Did you get your labs done? Were you fasting? And oh, by the way, have you traveled at all in the last two weeks in this case or, you know, whatever. Right. So, you know, again, there's a lot you can do before the patient even gets to you. But once they get to you, like in an ER, you have to ask the appropriate questions. Now, that being said, if you're an electronic system, you may have these forms already developed Mm -hmm. in your electronic system, but you need to be up on the case definitions to be able to edit those questions. So you don't want to, you know, after did you travel, it's where to. So if you went to Cleveland, like, who cares maybe? (laughs) But if you went to Wuhan, China, then I'm going to maybe care. I should care. Right. But, and then keep in mind, um, you may have several areas so, you know, if, if Ebola was to be, you know, it's still happening. Right. So <laughs> people forget about those type of things. So, you know, I might, have s- may, I might have a few different geological areas that I'm concerned with and periods of time. Right. So these forms need to be continually looked at, continually um, monitored for their effectiveness based on the data you collect. So it's sort of, if I could say it, it's, um, I'm, I'm using my, my air quotes, my my regular procedures, right? But depending on what particular things are the 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 virus or whatever of interest, that's going to affect the specific the particulars that I'm asking and looking for. Yeah. But the procedure sounds like doesn't change that much from from you know virus to virus. Other than or back or bacteria, bacteria. Or anything sure. really. Yeah. You know, even if it, say you know, uh, right? You're exactly right. You're your methodology shouldn't change. Your data collection points would, and that's what you have to watch out for. That task of keeping up with case definitions, making sure that forms are updated and so on, that's coming largely, if you've got one, out of your infection prevention department, I'm, I'm thinking. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what we do um, uh, with, with, actually, it's one of the many, many right. things we're responsible for. But, yes, there should be oversight from the uh, Certified infection preventionist, you know, the hospital epidemiologist, um, any other partners that need to be involved to inform those data points mm-hmm. so that you're as exact as you can be to actually, you know, protect yourselves, the staff, the visitors, the facility, and contain those persons to limit spread. I mean, that's, that's, that's our duty. So we, so we talked about right, screening and identifying. Right. If we've got somebody who, who raises a red flag, we're a person of interest, we're going to go to isolation. What other kind of steps should we be thinking about in, in this preparedness plan? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you need to have PPE available right then and there. Personal so protective equipment. Yeah, yes, yeah. thanks. Sorry. Sure. <laughs> uh, so that's key. So if, if you have the, I don't know, a nurse or receptionist at the desk and they, they answer these questions and, you know, the the, the person gets flagged, if you will, right then and there, they have to have access to the PPE, and you need to know what to do with the patient. So, okay, come over here, maybe put a mask on, sit here, we're going to take you back. You're not going to put them in the waiting room. <laughs> right, right, where they can cough <laughs> on everyone 25 else. 25 people around them and, and go, okay, well, we'll be with you in a minute. It's No, it's containment again. We, we know this person may or may not be... Uh, of interest. Mm-hmm. We need to evaluate them. We need to put our PPE on. We need to put maybe a mask on them until we get them to an isolation room where we can contain again. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, the one thing that amazes me is uh, having, ki- you know, having kids exposed me to this before. You know, I didn't have kids, so you go to the doctor, you sit with all the sick people. Right. When I go to the pediatrician, right, every pediatrician office I've ever been to has well visits and sick visits. Yep. And then they have all different sides of the waiting room. Yeah. One's the sick side, one's the well side. So I don't know why the pediatricians get it. <laughs> Nobody else does. <laughs> but not many people do. But again, you know, it's it's not it's not a critique. It's just a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's kind of how you have to be in the mindset. Plus, once you get that person into the isolation room in your ER, if that's what you choose to do, um, where do you go ne- next? Right. So that's when you're involving your public health partners, your local and state health departments. You know, are you, you know, at least uh, through the CDC and, and the states, there's uh, designated treatment centers. So mm-hmm. are you a treatment center? So then you're you're probably pretty good. You know what to do. But if you're not, you're going to be transferring to a treatment center. So there's coordination involved. Mm-hmm. That needs to be in your plan. And you need to know what you are and not think you can do things that you shouldn't or right. can't do. You know, Jim, one of the things that really concerns me with this kind of public health situation is uh, striking the right balance of communication, especially when hospitals are looked to as um, you know, authoritative institutions in their communities. So what are some strategies that, that organizations should consider as they talk about this, you know, trying to be informative and forthright, but also not causing a panic? Right. I mean, you have to put things in perspective. So, you know, from a, from a public relations department uh, view, you need to have, when things first are hot, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. It takes a lot of time. So you, you, you pretty much have to almost dedicate a person or at least a half a person at least to keep up with what the current communications are, what the case definitions are as they evolve, if they're not set in stone. For instance, the name change with, right. with coronavirus, you know, COVID, you know, and 2019, you know, we, what's the difference between that and what we're calling the disease? Right. So, you know, that's, that's one little example of like, okay, we need to be, because the, the, the internet is in everyone's hands now. So if you mix up terms like that, you lose credibility. So you need to um, be clear, be honest, don't overstate things. Um, go with the guidance that the federal government and the local health departments and state health departments are putting out. Mm-hmm. Um, look at the WHO stuff too and culminate that. But, you know, when in doubt, it's probably, you know, safer to vet these things through your local health department mm-hmm. um, versus being in doubt and putting it out there and, and losing credibility. The other piece, too, is, you know, be honest, be true, be transparent. Right. right. Um, you know, if someone says, you know, how many, if, if a reporter asks you, can you handle 20, you know, COVID-19 patients, you, you may not be able to handle 20 COVID-19 patients that require ventilation. So, right. you know, it's best to say, you know, we have alliances with, you know, state, local health departments, and if we do get into that situation, then we would put a we'll put a plan in place with, you know, the experts here at the facility and the experts in public health, and you know, yeah. however you craft that, but you don't want to take the full onus of questions like that, right? Because you don't know what you'll be looking at when it happens, if it happens. What about communicating with staff? That's another key audience. Staff need to be on the same page as you. They need to understand what their risks are, what the risks are to their families, if any. Um, you know, how they care. They need to know that they have their equipment, their PPE, um, you know, anything that you would want to know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, 
you just need to be open, clear, and honest because, and, and you know, the other thing too is um, they need to know, you know, hopefully if you're a center that would deal with something like this on a larger scale that you're drilling and prepping and, and, and mm. there's more to communication than just speaking. Right. So if, if they see the drilling and they see the preparations going on and you have maybe a couple more town halls to let them know that simulation is happening, there's teams involved of people who have been trained. You, you right. just don't want to throw somebody in a room and say, put on your mask and have fun. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what? So, yeah, I mean, nonverbal and verbal communication um, and, and, you know, posters being open and honest about what's going on and, and that, yes, they're protected and, you know, you wouldn't send them into a room that you wouldn't go into. Right. Yeah. Well, and it, it's funny, even as, as you were talking, it hadn't occurred to me, but you're right. Not everybody, even if I'm in a treatment center, most of the staff is not going to be involved in caring for COVID-19 patients. It's going to be a in th- potential, you know, a dedicated subset of staff. But anybody might encounter a patient. That is correct. And, and you know, we're, we're describing the best case scenario right now with not everyone would take care of that type of patient. Right. Hopefully that's the case. Hopefully there's not, you know, hopefully we don't in the United States become like China, when we have you know fifty thousand, I think, or whatever the number is, seventy thousand. I think it's seventy thousand at this point of persons that are infected, because that would, as it did there, kind of overwhelm. Sure. Okay. So, you know, the best thing I could say is like flu right now. We know what to do. Mm-hmm. We know how to protect ourselves. Every patient who comes in at in at this season. Now, there's debate whether flu has a seasonality at this point or not, but there is peaks in certain seasons. So again, you kind of know, so you have an advantage of, oh, we need to screen and test for flu. Right. But with coronavirus, if you meet the case definitions, you kind of get a head start on that one. With flu, anybody can have it. So it's kind of different approaches to how you would manage those situations. Hopefully we don't get overwhelmed. And you bring up a good point. You know, you, you kind of talk. We kind of talk about flu a little bit. What are we going to see more of in the United States? Right. Right now. Right. If nothing changes, flu. Flu. Right. So, I, you should you be know, asking the right questions about flu. We've had two cases in my house, even though we were all vaccinated. <coughs> it's just you one just of those didn't things. get it as bad as you would have. Exactly. Exactly. No, that's but so that's folks my point still is. get vaccinated. Yeah. <laughs> no. That, but my point is, <coughs> it's so much more common and more exactly. likely in. You know, we're here in, in southeast Pennsylvania. Right. And we have preventative measures for that. I mean, right. We get vaccinated. And, you know, if you do get it, you, prob- you probably didn't get it as bad as you would have. Right. So mort- mortality has decreased, mor- you know. So, again, but w- you know, we shouldn't underestimate the flu, I guess is what I'm saying as well. Well, and that's, you know, that's definitely one of the points I wanted to touch on is, you know, so, so this coronavirus is obviously dominating international media. Is there a risk that it overshadows things that are, you know, orders of magnitude more likely to occur, like like the flu, for instance? We're we're orders of magnitude more likely here outside of Philadelphia to contract the flu. <laughs> but I don't hear anybody talking about the flu when I listen to the radio. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to timestamp this. As of today, the 19th of February, right? Right, <laughs> right, right. right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if nothing changes, um, I do think, you know, I don't think it's, you know, it's sensational, right? It's something sure. novel. Mm-hmm. It's something that's spreading. We all have seen the movies. You know, I'm not going to mention them. Right. <laughs> but, you know, we need to look at what the reality of the current risks to us are. Yes, if you have an influx of folks in a 
and usually that happens in an area. Like, sure. You know, uh, you come from Wuhan, from Wuhan, China, or or the areas that are of interest. Usually, land kind of basically in the same space. Like I don't know whether it's New York or Newark or whatever. Right. But you know, but you're coming through now into a system that we're we're looking for you and hopefully picking you up. Right. So you have a it's a it's kind of like a like a gate. You know, mm-hmm. we, we know you're coming from there and. Our local public and state health departments are looking at those folks and hopefully, you know, tracking them, which is what we did back with, um, you know, the the flu pandemic. So we have a dedicated path for these people, whereas flu, it's like, okay, well, you know, how do you feel? Are you coughing? We'll test you for flu. Take your temperature. You know, are your kids sick? Are your parents sick? And we know that you're probably exposed to people like to flu or at least influenza-like illness. So does that um, put hospitals in a situation where sometimes, you know, now they're coordinating with folks who might otherwise be competitors? Yeah. You know, and so uh, obviously safety is everyone's top priority in this kind of situation. But what are some ways that they may, you know, need to interact or need to share information or resources that they otherwise might not? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I think in a situation like this, you know, it's – I don't think competition – in my experience, and I was on the teams for Ebola in, in, in the state of Pennsylvania, it, it wasn't that um, – we didn't get that sense where mm-hmm. people were like, "I'm not sharing with you," right? Um, uh, you know, it it was people took stock in all the equipment that was available. Um, some of that was coordinated by the state, like, "Okay, what do you have? What do you have? What do you have?" Um, mutual aid agreements, mm-hmm. but also sharing lessons. You know, like with the with the Pennsylvania Department of Health. Um, in my experience, they uh, facilitated those. You know the, the the what's available. They mm-hmm. also have the national strategic stockpiles that they have access to. So, you know, if if worse comes to worse, you can fall back on that as well. So sure. the competition for things. I think initially the competition was for was for supplies. So yeah. you had big conglomerates buying like all of the gowns, for instance. So from the different vendors. From right, and then things had to be allocated at that point from the vendors. So. You know, it was more about getting things initially, mm-hmm. which I think lessons have been learned from that. Sure. So if I'm situated, you know, in a health system and I'm I'm hearing this now and I'm saying, okay, I want to take a look at my outbreak response plan because it's been maybe since the Ebola outbreak a couple right. of years ago or since the flu outbreak before that. What's the first thing I'm going to look at? Well, my first critique is if it's been that long, it's been too long. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so these plans should be under continual review um, as things are happening from a either from a natural disaster, prop, you know, uh, point of view. From you know, you just build a new tower, and how does that impact everything? Mm-hmm. Um, as you as you're looking at your plan and maybe you're building a new tower, what can I do in the new space mm-hmm. that can facilitate my plan being better as far as where am I going to put patients if I have a mass influx of infectious patients for anything? For anything, yeah. Um, and, and that's it, for anything. So is it chemical? Is it biologic? Is it natural disaster? Sheltering in place? All those things should be looked at in your plan. I mean, and with this, I would be, um, you know, this is a good opportunity to drill. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so those those tabletops and those active live drills should be happening for this tester test your plans. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't wait for novel viruses to pop up and go, oh, we should test our plan. Right. <laughs> it should be on a schedule. You know, it should be. And, and a lot of folks are doing it well do that. They'll mm-hmm. monthly, whatever, they'll have drill continuous state of readiness and preparedness. You know, one of our and testing. And testing, right. One <laughs> of our um, analysts was actually had the opportunity to participate in her uh, local hospitals emergency preparedness drill, oh, cool. and so we'll um, we actually have a case study of that on that's available without login on the website. So we'll make sure that we add a link to that to yeah. our to our show notes because it was really the you know the the hospital was great and forthcoming in what they learned from doing that drill. You know, and that's going back to one of your earlier questions: how to how to communicate with staff mm-hmm. with the community. If you have community folks involved in those type of mass casualty drills, where you know. They get to put on some ketchup or some right. fake wounds or whatever right. and play the hurt person and see how everything works. Mm-hmm. And then the outcome of that is they, they get a little information about what the hospital or system might have learned. Mm-hmm. They're a proponent for you at that point. Yes. So if panic happens, they're like, no, we're, we're good. I participated. I participated. I saw. They know what they're I doing. I saw this. We learned things. We're, you know, this mm-hmm. is a great. So that's, there's some public relations there. Mm-hmm. You know? I've seen uh, folks utilize Boy Scout troops and kids talk. Mm. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's like, hey, I was at the hospital. I got to play, you know, a dead guy. <laughs> right, right. And they yeah. were really cool. Like, the stuff they showed me was really cool, mm-hmm. you know? So, and that's word of mouth for you, too. Like, okay, we're good. We're prepared. You know, just, yeah. just a side note. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. Jim Davis, thanks so much for joining us. Learn more about how ECRI Institute can help with outbreak preparedness, including proactive risk assessments and individualized consulting, on the ECRI Institute website at www.ecri.org. You'll find there our COVID-19 Outbreak Preparedness Center with links to free resources and links to guidance from U.S. and international healthcare organizations. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Please visit us at ecri.org slash podcasts or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.